Today on Blue 58, the Packers are beyond what anybody reasonably expected and probably beyond what anyone could have hoped for this season. Now they have to face what could be the best remaining team in the playoffs, visiting San Francisco to take on the 49ers. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink, and I am happy to be with you here for another episode. Because being here for an episode gives me a chance to talk about this game instead of just thinking about this game. One of the things that I have worked on over my life as a fan is getting less emotionally involved in games. The one that really drove it home for me the first time I tried to learn this lesson was the Packers' loss to the Philadelphia Eagles in the 4th and 26th game in the early 2000s. I was so upset after that game. And I remember being in my parents' basement just seething with anger over that game and hitting a point where I just was like, this is so stupid to feel this way over a thing that I had nothing to do with. The game could have gone on without me, could have not watched it, could have not even heard about it, and it wouldn't have changed a thing. And here I am, worked up and angry about it. Then, nearly 20 years later, I find myself sitting in this very podcast studio late at night after the 2020 NFC Championship game in which the Packers lost to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with, of course, a chance to go to the Super Bowl on the line. And just feeling like a weight, like this game just weighed so heavily on me, so emotionally invested in that game. And look, there's a lot of stuff going on in the 2020 season, I think for a lot of us. But just sitting there and the the gut punch that that loss was, just hanging there and still having a hard time starting the podcast because I thought just this is so dumb to feel this way and I can't get away from this feeling. I got to work on this. I got to not get so emotionally involved. And here I sit Thursday night ahead of the Packers game with the 49ers this Saturday, Saturday night playoff game, of course, thinking, worrying about this game. I started biting my fingernails again this week. That is a habit I have not had since I was in junior high school because I can't stop thinking about this football game. And I can't figure out why that is. Maybe it's just that exciting. But I can't help but think of two examples from, from media as to that, that speak to that a little bit. The first is a phrase that comes up in the Christopher Nolan movie, The Prestige, one of, I think, the, the more underrated movies in his, his catalog there. Um, but Hugh Jackman's character figures out how to do this incredible trick, and I don't think it's a huge spoiler to, to reveal that the trick is not really a trick, but the first time he pulls it off for an, his audience, I, I wonder if you've seen this movie, if you remember what he says to the crowd, He says man's reach exceeds his grasp. And I think that is where the Packers kind of find themselves right now. I think part of the reason that this Packers team has been able to advance as far as they have now is because they don't necessarily know what they're not supposed to be able to do yet. But they can do it. 
and they've done it quite effectively down the stretch through most of this season and into the playoffs, and they did it in spectacular fashion, of course, against the Cowboys. Their reach exceeds probably what we are able to grasp. So, as a result, I wonder if I'm a little bit more excited about this game, maybe more optimistic than I otherwise would be in the cold and sober analysis of, you know, how good are the 49ers really? There's also this lingering nervous feeling to me, and I guess fantasy novels are kind of the theme of this podcast lately. Because a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the, um, you know, what do we have at this moment sort of resource acquisition moment in a lot of books and movies. Who, who can actually help us here? And then last week I was talking about Conan the Barbarian, the, the movie version, I guess. Though I forgot to, I forgot to mention the, the Robert E. Howard uh, complete short story works collection is available on Amazon if you're interested in that for like $1.99. If you're into sword and sorcery stuff, there's a bunch of stuff in there for you. If you're into boxing short stories, there's a bunch of great stuff in there too. Check that out. That's for free. That's not even podcast stuff. Anyway... Along those kind of lines, been thinking about the difference between last week and this week because this sort of situation pops up in these kind of books and movies and stuff like that a lot. Because last week was the adventure, the point in the adventure where things are scarier than they used to be, but still kind of low stakes. Kind of getting a feel for the world. Your protagonists may not yet know how dangerous the world is, but they're going to get their first taste of something different than just life in the Shire, just to throw something out there, or at home, or whatever, wherever the protagonists start out. But at a certain point in the book or the movie, you cross the threshold and something suddenly everything becomes real. Suddenly it becomes apparent that this is no longer just a lark. You're playing with the big boys now. This is where it gets real. And I think it's real now. Maybe only for me, but I think it gives me anxiety going into this game just because we're really going to get a measure of how far along this Packers team is and how far they may yet have to go. And so here come the 49ers, who have been historically a bit of a playoff bogeyman for the Packers, at least in the 21st century. Not to pick at some old wounds, but the Packers have lost to the 49ers four straight times in the playoffs, each disgusting in its own way. Twice they have lost to the 49ers by 14 points or more. One of those was close until everything fell apart in 2012. I think the historical recollection, you see the highlight videos and stuff, make it seem like Colin Kaepernick just ran over the Packers from start to finish in that game. It really wasn't happening. It was pretty close into the second half, at least score-wise. In any case, that one fell apart down the stretch. The other time the Packers lost big to the 49ers was 2019 in a game that was never really competitive. But then... Just for a different flavor of disappointment, the Packers lost to the 49ers twice by three points on two different occasions. Well, yeah, that's what twice means, John. In 2013, the Packers lost in a last-second field goal on a kick that went right through Morgan Burnett's outstretched arms. After what would have been the game-winning interception went right past Morgan Burnett on the very same drive that the game-winning interception fell off of Micah Hyde's hands. Then, in 2021, after... Everything that happened in that season, we get the Packers losing 13-10 to 10 in the playoffs to the 49ers in a game that I am convinced, looking back on, would have been a rout in the Packers' favor if Mercedes Lewis didn't fumble early in that game because the 49ers were wobbling already. 
They did not look like they liked the cold at all. And then Mercedes Lewis turns it over, and you can see the whole body language of that team change, saying, we've got a shot now. And they did, and the Packers handed that game to them. Just as an aside, losing to the 49ers in the playoffs is an entirely 21st century phenomenon. They took the 49ers out in 1995, 1996, and 1997, and would have in 1998 if Jerry Rice's fumble had been properly ruled. If you ever meet somebody that is convinced that Steve Young would be in the greatest of all time quarterback discussion, and maybe he should be, even if that's a discussion that I don't want to take part in, This is the reason that he's not, because the 49ers could not get past the Packers for the entire middle portion of the 90s, except for 1998 when they got some help. Packers did get them in the 2001 playoffs, though, and we'll talk about that in a second. So the Packers have a chance to see how far their reach can extend here. Who is in their way? The San Francisco 49ers. What is this team exactly? Looking at the 49ers as a whole, on the one thing, on the one hand, they are probably the closest thing to a juggernaut in the NFC. And if you want to make the case that they are the best team remaining in the playoffs, I would be willing to sit and listen to that. They come in at 12 and 5. They have the third-ranked scoring offense. They have the third-ranked scoring defense. They have Kyle Shanahan, who might be the best working coach in the game right now. They've got elite guys at crucial positions on offense. They've got a solid front on defense. They've got a secondary that does not seem to make major mistakes. They've got more pass rushing depth, really, to reiterate that point, that you could really reasonably ask for, and we'll talk about that. They've put out some big wins over playoff teams. They handled the Cowboys 42-10. to They beat up on the Cowboys 42-19. to But on the other hand, how impressive are they, really? They had a three-game losing streak on their record in October where they never scored above 17 points. They have a second half of this season where you could fairly ask if they ever beat a single good team. Their seven wins in their final nine games came against the Jaguars, the Buccaneers, the Seahawks twice, the Eagles, the Commanders, and the Cardinals. Who was the best team in that list? Probably one of the Buccaneers, Seahawks, or Eagles, right? Well, how great are any of those teams? The Eagles' collapse is the story of the second half of the NFL season. The defending NFC champion chair, the NFC Super Bowl representative, just cannot get it together down the stretch to the point that their coach is on the hot seat, and justifiably so. The Buccaneers maybe, but they're nobody's elite team. The big <laughs> we, we sat here after the Packers lost to the Buccaneers and basically were like, how can we lose to this team? They're the best team in a bad division, but... That doesn't say all that much. And then you've got the, the Seahawks, who finish at 9-8, and eight, but they're a pretty deeply flawed team, too. How excited do you really get about any of those wins? I don't know if you're really that excited. And then there are two losses. First one comes against the Rams, or I guess maybe not first, but it's the second of these two losses. That game may have been meaningless. The Rams certainly weren't taking it all that seriously with some of the personnel decisions that they made. But that 33-19 loss to the Ravens looks pretty bad for the 49ers. Brock Purdy falls to the pieces to the extent that he has to get benched. Their offense can't get anything going. Their defense gives up 33. That's against one of the better teams in the AFC, and the 49ers got smoked. So, to ask the question again, 
who are these 49ers? Let's start with their offense. Kyle Shanahan, of course, runs the the show there. He of the wide zone tree. If you haven't listened to the Play Callers podcast from The Athletic, or not The Athletic, The Ringer, I'd go ahead and pound that out before game time because it's going to give you a good insight into Shanahan, how he and his tree developed and iterated and things like that. And that's really the thing with the elite offensive coaches and defensive coaches in the NFL is that it's all about iteration. Ideally, you would be able to point to things that are markedly different from previous versions of the Shanahan 49ers to now and say this is why they are this way this year. I think it's actually a little bit more simple than that, and it starts and ends with the quarterback because most of the other personnel is basically the same as what we've seen from the 49ers before. Christian McCaffrey is a relatively recent addition, but Purdy is the biggest change from for the 49ers from those 2019-2020 San Francisco 49ers teams that the Packers both beat and lost to. Purdy this year, 4,280 yards, 31 touchdowns, 11 interceptions, basically identical stats to Jordan Love in the big counting measure stuff. But what he does really well compared to his predecessor in particular, and this should drive this home pretty effectively here, was his deep passing. Purdy is pro football focus's second best graded deep passer in the NFL. He doesn't do it tons and tons. He actually doesn't throw the ball all that much. Uh, he's middle of the pack in terms of adjusted depth or uh, yeah, average depth of target. But when he throws deep, he does it very, very well. He's extremely productive throwing deep down the field. Just for comparison, Jimmy Garoppolo was one of Pro Football Focus's worst-graded deep passers this year. So if you're looking for a clear difference between the 49ers then and the 49ers now, it's that they have finally found a quarterback who allows them to go deep. What does he not do so well? Handle pressure. Among all passers, he was Pro Football Focus's 18th best quarterback against pressure this year. Not bad per se, and it looks even a little bit better once you start filtering a bit. Among quarterbacks with at least 150 snaps against pressure this year, he was pro football focus's seventh best out of 23. Jordan Love was fifth, by the way, but his game does drop off when you pressure him. That's the point of pressure. Just about everybody is worse against pressure than against than in a clean pocket. We're not reinventing the wheel to point that out. He also doesn't take care of the ball particularly well overall. 5.4% of his throws resulted in turnover-worthy plays. That's actually a typo. It's 3.4% of his throws resulted in turnover-worthy plays. Seventh out of 25 quarterbacks with 400 dropbacks or so. He, To put some harder numbers on it, he had 11 interceptions and six fumbles. Not all of them lost, but six fumbles nonetheless. On a combined 511 throws, sacks, and carries. That's turning the ball over or, I guess, giving an opportunity for a turnover when you group fumbles in there on about 3.3% of the plays that he's involved in. Jordan Love, um, 11 interceptions and 9 fumbles on a combined 629 throws, sacks, and carries. That's 3.2%. Turnovers can be had by both teams. Love, though, in particular, has really cleaned things up down the stretch. He's not turning things over nearly as frequently as he used to. Up front, the 49ers are okay. They've had six different offensive linemen record at least 400 blocking snaps this year. Only Trent Williams appears to be a plus blocker both both against the pass and the run. Their entire offensive line outside of Williams grades out pretty poorly as pass blockers. If there is an opportunity to take advantage of something on this 49ers offense, it is that. However, that's not to say their passing game is limited by the quality of their blocking because it's not. 
It's not really limited in any way. The 49ers passing game is made up entirely out of people you've heard of. They have four, four guys on this team with 80 or more targets this year. Brandon Ayuk leads the way in targets this year. He's averaging 17.9 yards per catch, plays just about a quarter of his snaps in the slot, another three quarters out wide. He is their deep threat, an average depth of target of 14.9 yards. That's not like super deep stuff, not exclusively going deep like we saw with late Packers era Marquez Valdez-Scantling, but still pretty deep. He's also averaging nearly five yards per catch after the catch on every reception. George Kittle uh, is next on the list in targets, my favorite non-Packers tight end. Just a big grubby looking dude who gets stuff done, and I just so relatable. Uh, he is in line more than you'd expect from a 250-pound tight end. 35% of his sla- snaps come in the slot, another 65% or so out wide. Then you've got Christian McCaffrey averaging 8.4 yards per catch. We're not just talking check down numbers at that point. He is a very effective receiver, though that 8.4 yards per catch figure is his lowest output per catch as a receiver since 2018. Then to cap it all off, you've got Debo Samuel. Call him Mr. Let Him Run because he does all of his damage. Well, not all of his damage, but a lot of his damage after the catch. 8.7 yards after the catch per catch. That is a career low. And that is still spectacular. The approach there is obvious. They want him to get the ball and let him run. And why not? A little sawed-off shotgun of a dude. Six feet tall, 215 pounds by listed weight. If you told me he was both shorter and heavier than that, I would absolutely believe you. People like to say the, the running back at wide receiver line about a lot of different guys. Debo Samuel actually appears to be one. However, he's playing in the backfield less than he ever has. Well, at least less than he did last year. He just 47 snaps in the backfield this year, according to Pro Football Focus. Down from 111 last year, counting the playoffs. Only 18 of those 111 came in the playoffs. So even then, still talking about half as frequent that you're seeing Debo Samuel in the backfield. On the ground, Christian McCaffrey is leading the way for the 49ers. He's as great as everybody says he is. 5.4 yards per attempt. We don't need to go any deeper than that. He's going to get the bulk of the carries for them, and he does a lot of damage when he does. Fellow back Elijah Mitchell has taken on a bit of a bigger role lately, 31 carries over their past two games. I don't know if that's just spelling McCaffrey or not. He is only averaging 3.7 yards per attempt, though. However, Debo Samuel is their little additional one-trick pony back there. He has 37 rushing attempts on the season. Do the math, 47 backfield attempts, 30 or 47 backfield snaps, that is, 37 rushing attempts, when he's in the backfield, he's going to be getting the ball almost all of the time. And he's doing a lot of good things with it when he does. He's averaging 6.1 yards per attempt. Not too shabby there. Adding in an injury report, and I don't know why it's taking me so long to put this in the previews, but it's here now. And what I have to share with you, as far as the 49ers injuries go, is nothing. They are remarkably healthy on offense. In Wednesday's practice, they only had one DNP and two limited participants. None of them were on offense, and they don't have a single meaningful player on injured reserve on the offensive side of the ball. They've got the full machine available. They've got the full menu. They've got the full whatever. I I should have thought of a third thing there before I started going down that line of thinking. They've got everybody they want. They can pick and choose, and it's not going to be a challenge for them to sorted out because they've got everybody ready to go on offense. So how do the Packers stop it? That is a very difficult question. 
first and foremost, you're probably going to want to put pressure on Brock Purdy. Not a perfect plan, but about as good as we we were going to get because he is the most obvious weak link in their offense. Even, you know, if you don't like former NFL defensive coordinator Greg Williams, I think he's former now, uh, of the Saints and Browns, uh, he always said, you know, on the way to orchestrating a, a, a bounty program with the Saints or whatever, uh, whatever his exact involvement was there, he was at least aware of it, it seems. But he always said, you know, kill the head and the snake will die. Well, who's the head of the snake on an offense? It's the quarterback. You attack the quarterback, you render the quarterback ineffective, and the rest of the machine isn't going to go anywhere. That's what we saw the Ravens do. They made Purdy so ineffective that the 49ers had to go in a different direction for the remainder of that game. If you can affect Purdy, take advantage of the the turnover-worthy plays that he does have, and pressure him, you're probably on your way to slowing down the 49ers' offense at least. However, they're good enough running the ball that even if Purdy is totally wiped out of the game, they're still dangerous. And I don't know if you've heard this, but the Packers are not especially strong stopping the run. Secondly, you may just want to hope for rain. Matt Barrows of The Athletic wrote this week about the cracks in the 49ers machine, as he put it. One of the things he points out is Brock Purdy's struggles in the rain. Quote, he dealt with some drops during last year's playoff opener against the Seattle Seahawks. He threw for 332 yards and three touchdowns in that game, but he was more efficient late in the game than he was early on when it was raining and the ball was slick. Against the Browns this season, he was 12 of 27 on his pass attempts and seemed to struggle during a rainy stretch late in the second quarter. Purdy's throws wobbled. He missed tight end George Kittle on a deep throw, then lost the ball on a third down drop back, end quote. So if the weather is poor on Saturday night, Purdy may be in a little bit of trouble. And as of right now, there is some rain in the forecast for the San Francisco area on Saturday night. Something to watch. On defense, Steve Wilkes is running the show for the 49ers. He took over for D'Amico Ryans, now the head coach of the of the Houston Texans. Uh, Ryans himself took over for Robert Sala after two years, and the 49ers, whoever's running the show, just keep churning out good defenses. And I think you can mainly say that it is because they've just got a lot of bunch of good players in that side of the ball. What a concept. Wilkes, though, is on a nice career reclamation tour. Uh, He was a longtime NFL defensive backs coach, basically running from 2005 to 2017. Uh, He was in a a variety of different defensive backs and passing game coordinators and stuff like that. His big break came in 2017 when he was named the defensive coordinator of the Carolina Panthers after having that job for just a year. He'd been in Carolina previously, but getting the, the top defensive job there, he got the head coaching job for the Arizona Cardinals. In 2018, that lasted for just one year. Then he was with the Browns for the year, or for a year, down with with Missouri for 2021 after a year out of football in 2020. In 2022, he lands with the Carolina Panthers again, takes over as their interim head coach, goes six and six down the stretch, and then lands with the San Francisco 49ers, where he is leading one of the best defenses in the NFL this year. You can see how things might be trending up for him a little bit after going just 3-13 and with the Arizona Cardinals in 2018 in his only head coaching gig in the NFL. However, as you may recall, one of those three wins that year was against the Green Bay Packers. He ended at least one coaching tenure in his very brief time as the head man in the NFL. It just so happened to be the Packers' Super Bowl-winning head coach that finally ran into the juggernaut that was head coach Steve Wilkes. His defense, 
very good. However, one thing the 49ers do not do very much is blitz. They only bring additional pressure on 18% of their defensive plays or passing plays. That is the third lowest rate in the league. They want to get pressure with their front and let the back end operate essentially independently. That's what Robert Sala wanted to do with the 49ers. And guess who is 31st in the NFL in blitz blitz rate this year? The New York Jets. So Sala right behind his own former team from a couple of coordinators ago, but running essentially the same kind of at least aggression level defense that he did when he was that well that he does right now. They generally don't rely on just an insane amount of pressure either. They're not just relying on their elite players up front to make plays in the passing game or with passing defense. According to Pro Football Reference, they're getting pressures on just just under 21% of their pass rushes. That is 18th in the league. The Packers, for comparison, are up at 6th in the NFL with 24.3% of their rushes resulting in pressures. So how can you have such a good defense if you're not traditionally aggressive and you're not getting tons and tons of pressures? Well, again, having those elite players up front is going to help. More on that in a second. But also, just take the ball away a whole bunch. Uh, they specifically are intercepting the ball a, a lot. They are tied with the league lead for twenty with 22. Uh, but they are forcing so many turnovers that they are changing games in huge ways. 15.5% of their opponents' drives this year have ended with a turnover that is second best in the NFL, again, according to Pro Football Reference. Their front, as we've said, is loaded with talent. Uh, They're good at every level, but the front, I think, is the highlight, at least in terms of the big names. Nick Bosa leading the way with a 16.8% pressure rate this year, 10.5 sacks. Goes to his third straight Pro Bowl this year. He's no slouch against the run. He is their top-graded edge or defensive lineman against the run this year. Then you've got Chase Young, who came to the 49ers from uh, Washington in November, 2.5 sacks since, getting pressure on about 12% of his pass rushes. Eric Armstead is expected to be back in the lineup for the 49ers this week. He last played in early December, but he's been out the last five games with a foot injury. He did have five sacks in 12 games prior to that and is their second-highest graded player in the front. He's right at about 12% too. And he presents a different challenge because he is enormous. I mean, all defensive linemen are big in at least one way, but he's huge. Six foot seven, 290 pounds, just a big, big dude that's going to be a handful to deal with. You wonder how someone like Zach Tom, a little bit on the smaller side for an offensive lineman, might deal with someone like Armstead when and if he has to. And then rounding it out up front, you've got Javon Hargrave getting pressure on nearly 12% of his pass rushes as well in his first year with the 49ers. So they got at least four guys that are going to play a lot of snaps, that are getting a lot of pressure on the quarterback. Interestingly, though, just about everybody on the front other than Bosa grades out at average or worse against the run. If you're going to do anything to these 49ers up front, you might try to run on them. However, if you do that, you're going to be running into the other strength of their defense, at least in terms of their the guys that play close to the line of scrimmage, Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw. Warner might be the gold standard at the position, at linebacker, off the ball, or close to it. He rarely comes off the field if he does it all, and he does do it all when he is on the field. But he's played 90 or 90-plus percent of the snaps on defense for the sixth straight year, despite being just a six foot three, 230-pound linebacker. Definitely not big, and Dre Greenlaw isn't big either. He's played another 800 snaps for the 49ers this year, despite being, again, just six feet tall, and 230 pounds. He's grading out well 
uh, against the run, too. Beyond that, it's basically cameo guys in terms of linebackers, including former Packers linebacker Oren Burks, who is playing much better with the 49ers than he ever did with the with the Packers. So in addition to you know having solid players up front and at every level of the defense, the 49ers appear to use those players a little bit better, too, because a guy like Burks, who is not great in Green Bay, is playing better for the 49ers. Something that stands out about these linebackers, particularly Warner and Greenlaw, when you look at their advanced stats, is that they both miss quite a few tackles. Warner's at nearly a 16% missed tackle rate, and Greenlaw is at about 12%. Both are more than Devondre Campbell, who he gives some guff to for missing about 10% of his tackles. Part of missing tackles, though, is being in position to make tackles. If you're going to be running all over the field, being in on every play, you're going to have more of a chance to miss tackles. So it's not necessarily a huge knock against you if you are missing an amount of tackles. There's got to be a line where it, it is more of a negative than, you know, that you can just brush aside by saying, well, he's in on a lot of plays. But um, there's certainly, it seems, getting in on more plays than a guy like Devondre Campbell is, which I think is apparent for just about everyone to see at this point in his season. In the defensive backfield, the the 49ers have seven players who have played at least 396 snaps this year. None has a season-long grade from Pro Football Focus of less than 67.6. I don't want to dive into the individual players in the secondary more than I have it up with the front and linebackers because I think the front and linebackers are the more important part of this defense. But the point is that their defense is really good and their secondary doesn't have any real holes. The noteworthy things that do uh, pop up in their secondary come down to, to injury. Uh, safety Talanoa Hufanga is on injured reserve right now. He, pl- he played a lot of snaps for their defense prior to their injury, 577 snaps on defense. And you may recognize his name as the guy who ended up with the ball after the block punt that turned the game in the 2021 playoffs against the Packers. He is on injured reserve. Uh, And then you've got cornerback Jair Brown, who's coming back after missing the last couple of weeks with a knee injury. He's their 2023 third-round pick and had played 100% of the snaps in five straight games before his injury. So him being a little bit on the um, more uncertain end of things is noteworthy considering how much he played prior to uh, to his injury. The, the, The 49ers don't appear to have missed that many beats without him, but he was playing quite a bit. For a team with a bunch of takeaways, their ball hawks are pretty spread out. It's not just a couple of dominant guys, especially in the secondary, though they do have those. Uh, they have four guys in double digits uh, through the regular season. Cornerback Traverius Ward had 29 on the year. Linebacker Fred Warner, another 21 and a half. Nick Bosa had 16 and a half, 10 and a half of those were sacks. And then cornerback Diamador Lenore had 13. Injury-wise, they're healthy on defense, too. Uh, Cleland Farrell is their only DNP so far this week, and I didn't see the Thursday injury report, uh, but he was through Wednesday. Uh, Dre Greenlaw has been a limited participant so far this year, and then cornerback Logan Logan Ryan, who plays a very small role with this defense, was also limited in practice. Farrell has been kind of a second-tier rotational guy for the 49ers this year, slightly more snaps on a on a per game and a per game basis than a guy like say Lucas Van Ness. Losing him probably doesn't impact the 49ers all that much, though it did come up in that athletic article as a a potential pain point for them just because of his familiarity with the defense. If you're asking where the 49ers should attack or where the Packers should attack the 49ers, that is, got to be honest, I don't have a real idea. Uh, I think you start with running the ball 
Try to get away with as much of that as you can. Ride the hot streak from Aaron Jones, and then just make sure you're taking care of the ball beyond that. We haven't seen the back-breaking mistake from Aaron Jones that we've seen in a few of the Packers' big games in the past yet. So if he can avoid that this week, that would be fantastic. Special teams are not going to belabor the point here too much other than to um, mention that in that athletic piece, uh, the author did mention the 49ers' um, kickoff return units being one of their, or kickoff coverage units, excuse me, being one of their weakest points on the team in an already weak special teams overall unit. Uh, Their field goal kicking not great as well. Rookie kicker Jake Moody uh, has not been spectacular But covering kicks, the 49ers have struggled a bit. They've tried to just kick for touchbacks as often as they can. As we know, Keyshawn Nixon doesn't particularly care about that. So if the 49ers are indeed weak against covering kicks, I just want to put out there, I want to imminentize the possibility of Keyshawn Nixon returning a touchdown in this game to really swing things in the Packers' favor. Put me down for one. I mean, how great would that be to see? The Packers have struggled on forty on on um, special teams for so long. Uh, special teams play turned their last game against the 49ers. How sweet would it be if Keyshawn Nixon took one back for a touchdown in the playoffs? We're just going to really concentrate on making that happen as much as we possibly can, recognizing that I did open this podcast talking about how frustrating it is to get emotionally involved in this game, knowing that I have no impact on the outcome. Nevertheless, usually we take a little time to talk about the last time the Packers faced a particular team in these previews. I have no interest in revisiting the last time the Packers faced the 49ers, especially in the playoffs, because who really wants to go back and revisit the last playoff loss of the Aaron Rodgers era? Let's instead rewind the clock to Sunday, January 13th, 2002. It is a cold January Sunday at Lambeau Field. Kickoff temperature just 28 degrees as you and 59,824 of your closest friends prepare for an 11.35 a.m. kickoff at Lambeau Field. How different were the early 2000s in terms of how the NFL did things? Packers jump out to an early 6-0 lead, scoring a Touchdown on a pass from Brett Favre to Antonio Freeman in the first quarter. Uh, Garrison Hurst responds with a two-yard touchdown run in the second quarter just before halftime. Packers score twice in the second quarter or in the second half to start the second half. Uh, Ryan Longwell kicks a field goal, and Bubba Frank scores a 19-yard touchdown on a pass from Brett Favre late in the third quarter. But the 49ers tie things up when Ty Streets scores a playoff octopus, scoring eight points, getting the touchdown and the two-point conversion to tie things at 15, but the Packers pour it on from there to pull out the 25-15 to win thanks to a Ryan Longwell field goal and a late touchdown run from Amon Green to put the 49ers away in this one. I'm careful mentioning this because I don't want to get it taken down, but the this game is available in its entirety on YouTube, and I highly recommend checking out at least the first little bit of it because the 49ers get the ball to start the game. You get the vibes of John Madden at Lambeau Field in the playoffs. The whole early 2000s Fox aesthetic is great. And then on the very first offensive play of the game, Jeff Garcia drops back to pass. Nobody's open. He goes to scramble up the middle, and he is met 
by Gilbert Brown, who falls on Jeff Garcia, driving him into the turf, and just sets the tone for the entire Packers win there. Just everything 13-year-old me could have hoped for in a game. Just Gilbert Brown doing Gilbert Brown things in the playoffs. What more do you want? The black visor, the gravedigger dance, it was all there. Early 2000s were different, man. How did the Packers win this one? How do we get those same kind of vibes that we had in the early 2000s in this one? I think this game comes down to the unforced or maybe even forced errors on both sides. I think much like their game against the, the Cowboys, if the Packers can create some of those opportunities, they win. If they don't, they probably lose. I think a lot like the Cowboys game, if the Packers just go into this game thinking that they're going to go toe-to-toe with the Cowboys and just trade haymakers, they're probably not going to be able to do that. They're going to have to rely on forcing some mistakes from the 49ers and allowing the 49ers to make some of their own mistakes. And that's exactly what we saw the Cowboys do. That's what the Packers need to do in this one. The Packers desperately need to take care of the ball because the 49ers have the personnel and the coaching to make them pay for errors on their side, which is very doable. Jordan Love has just two turnover-worthy plays over his last four games, according to Pro Football Focus. Technically, by rate, he is throwing interceptions at a lower rate than uh, Aaron Rodgers did in his first year as a starter. And just overall, Rodgers threw 13 interceptions to Love's 11. He, He is capable of doing it. The Packers are also going to have to get after Brock Purdy. Also very doable. They can pressure the passer. They've done it before, and they're going to have to do it again to win this game. So, are the Packers going to win? Picking with my head, I say no. The Packers should probably lose this game. But the thing is, this game is not unwinnable. I think the spread on this game is is too high. I think this is probably going to be a closer game than Vegas anticipates. I think the, the Packers have a very real chance of pulling an upset in this one. And just seeing the overwhelming consensus that it's going to be the 49ers, that they're just going to to do what the 49ers do when they're at their best, gives me some pause. Let's put it that way. I am wary of things like feel that feel like the foregone conclusion because I think the puncher's chance is underrated. I like reading about boxing a lot because I, I, it's a very interesting human phenomenon to go into, into a ring with an opponent fighting in this very structured, very highly regulated style where it's not everything goes. It's not, um, you know, you don't have really different styles of boxing in the way that you have different styles of, of mixed martial arts, at least not to the same degree. You just got to go in there and take some punches and give some punches, and there's nowhere to hide. And the thing that comes up with a lot of boxing writers is the idea of this puncher's chance. One punch can change the game. One punch. I mean, a guy could be winning on points, running away with it, and then in the eighth round or the ninth round, the guy who's just been getting pummeled sneaks one through, catches the champ just right on the chin, and suddenly the ref's there on the ground counting eight, and you're just a heartbeat or two away from from taking the fight. I think that is underrated as a phenomenon in football. It's harder to do. There's no one single play that's going to change everything. Even to, I guess, to bring up the last 
time the Packers saw the 49ers, even in that game that turned on that block punt that the 49ers scored a touchdown on, the 49ers had a lot of other work to do in that game to keep that game close so that play could change everything. But if you can keep it close, then one play like that, one bounce of the ball, one tipped pass that goes one way instead of the other way, that can swing a whole game. And that's always been my biggest beef with the stuff from a couple of years ago where the Packers were talked about as the luckiest team in the NFL or the worst 13-3 and team ever. And maybe that's true. But you get into the playoffs, you play these games, and weird stuff can happen. Things you don't expect can happen. So who cares if the Packers are supposed to lose this game? Who cares if the 49ers are a juggernaut? They may be. They may be the better team. They may be a team that should beat the Packers and beat them handily. But the game hasn't been played yet. And the Packers have showed this season that they can hang with just about anybody. And they can also get beat by just about anybody. But they've been beating a lot of people lately. They haven't beaten anybody quite like the 49ers. But they can do this. Whether or not they do, that's anybody's guess. And I think I'm almost past the point of picking anything to do with the Packers at this point because, shoot, maybe that's my lesson. I don't have anything to do with the Packers. doesn't matter what I think one way or another. They can win, and that's the point. Whether or not they do the things that enable them to win, that's an entirely different thing. I'll leave you with this. If you want to talk about someone who can have a big impact on this game, that needs to play better than he has lately. Let's talk a little bit about Rashawn Gary. This question came up in our Discord server today uh, today from the Jet Sweep guy, um, a regular question asker in there, and uh, brought this up as, you know, uh, as a kind of follow-up to the guys that need to step up episode we did after, or well, earlier this week, talking about Kingsley and Igbari going down. I was talking mainly about guys behind the depth chart that need to step up to play a bigger role in Inigbari's absence. How about guys ahead of him on the depth chart who could play better? You can look at the pressure rates. You can look at the the raw counting stats. You can look at, at it just about any way that you'd like. But it's hard to escape the conclusion that Rashawn Gary is not having as big an impact on the game now as he was earlier in the season. He really hasn't had a dominant game since that Thanksgiving game when he had the three sacks. Also had a sack against the Chiefs, but he really hasn't dominated. His pressure rates have steadily gone down over the course of the season. The rate at which he is making contact on the quarterback has dropped accordingly. Even in games where he's getting a lot of pressures, he's not finishing those pressures. He's not hitting the quarterback. He's not sacking the quarterback. That's basically been the trend for Gary over the course of the season. If the Packers have ever needed Rashawn Gary, they need him now. He is going to be a target in the run game because of how he plays against the run, and he is going to have some of the biggest opportunities in the passing game just because of how the 49ers protect the passer, which is to say, not very well. If there's one player on this Packers defense who has not had a lot of impact plays lately, who could impact this game in a big way, it's Rashawn Gary. And the Packers need him to step up now because they need their best players, their biggest stars, their most highly paid players to play their best in the playoffs. And now it's time. Now it's time for the few veterans that the Packers have to really make an impact 
Darnell Savage got his last week. Aaron Jones got his last week. Preston Smith got his last week. It's time for Rashawn Gary, the at least financial leader of the Screen Bay Packers defense, to be a leader in the box score and in the advanced metrics too. It's time. It is time. So I've got for you in this episode of Blue 58. I appreciate you tuning in. I'd appreciate it even more if you'd take a second and share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it that's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.